grew up in a house where the only books we had were Bibles or books about the Bible. You learn to build this sort of mental filter for external sources. So there's a constant tension with every sort of external stimulus. Evolution is the most obvious thing. I think it was mentioned once in the eighth grade. And it's frustrating to grow up, you go through a higher education, work work in a technology field, and learn about evolution in your 30s. Chris Ladd grew up in a fundamentalist Christian home in Beaumont, a refinery town in East Texas. The town next door was known for its active KKK. Church was the dominant force in Chris's life, and he went to church three times a week. But that religious mental filter he built to shield him from the outside world, well, it eventually cracked. I'm Stephanie Lepp, and this is Reckonings. What was the worldview that you grew up with in your home? Our worldview is best described as uh, revealed. Our opinions about the world, our understanding about how the world works, what's right and wrong, was all given to us, essentially as a heritage with reference to the Bible. And there was no need to doubt that, question it, evaluate it, judge it. It was delivered. It's perfect. And anything that you do to question that is somewhere between sedition and witchcraft. So that's interesting that you describe it less in terms of what it was and more in terms of how you were invited to relate to it or not. How would you characterize it just in terms of, of its substance? It's remarkable how much of it is focused on sexual mores, sexual rules, and it's remarkable how little of it related to what you read in the four Gospels as things that Jesus talked about. Jesus didn't talk about that stuff very much, but but we talked about it a lot. Huh. Uh, you know, abortion was wrong. If you get pregnant, it's you know, it's your problem. And there was a general sense that the you know the outside world was defiled, wrong, uh, dangerous. But Chris was thrown into that dangerous outside world. Out of his siblings, he went through the most desegregation busing, which meant that to help with desegregating schools in his area, he was sent not to the schools closest to his home, but to schools all over the county. I got pushed out of our cultural bubble by that experience. You are exposed to so many more ways of seeing the world exposed to the fact that people can live very different from you and be successful and happy. And in the kind of religious background I was given, that really wasn't supposed to be possible. Ours was supposed to be the only way to be okay in the world. I didn't know what to do with it. It was not something I wanted to discover. It just sort of stewed. That stewing led Chris not to go to a religious college, which is where his parents wanted him to go. Instead, he went to a secular liberal arts college, 
with help from a scholarship. And Chris kept seeing those tensions between his worldview and the world around him, first as a student in college, just north of Austin, and then as a married professional in Houston, where he worked in software and volunteered in the local Republican Party. Those tensions eventually reached a breaking point. Living with my wife in Houston, we already had uh, our first son. Uh, I think he was. I think he was almost two, and uh, my wife uh, was developing uh, what has been sort of a, a chronic condition, sort of related to lupus. We didn't know what it was at the time, but we knew that she was often sick, and that when she was sick, she could be really, really sick for extended periods. And um, she was pregnant. We were very excited about it, but uh, some things had started to go wrong. Um, and the uh, the conditions around that were becoming really painful. She was very sick, and in the course of you know frequent trips uh, to the doctor, uh, they concluded that uh, the pregnancy was not going to be viable. They could tell that the uh, the, the fetus had died. Yeah. I remember the call from the doctor about this while my wife was uh, in the bathroom throwing up uh, and bleeding. Our two-year-old I had in his room, I was trying to keep him busy and listening to this, and the obvious question came up, can you end this? Because this is horrible, and she's getting really, really sick, and I'm wondering how long this is going to carry on. And the doctor got really uncomfortable and evasive and said, well, we can't do that. And I, you know, with you know, conversation about, I'm not sure I understand. And she explained that the, the, you know, the facility that she worked in would not let them perform procedures that you know, might be construed as an abortion without going through. There was actually a, a committee that involved the, the chairman of the hospital that they'd have to get these things cleared with. So this will work itself out. You know, how long will it take? You know, somewhere between a week to a month. And I, I just, I, I, you know, I, I was looking at my wife and getting increasingly concerned about how far this might go, what secondary conditions she might start experiencing as this got worse. Right. And realizing that the doctor just told me she can't perform a purely medical procedure because someone at a political level might construe this as an abortion. And I found that I was enraged. I was just absolutely enraged. And it had it's amazing to me now, but it just had never occurred to me to think of abortion as a medical as a medical issue. I had always just thought of it as you know something people do when their contraceptive plans fail. I, I, it, I was appalled by the situation. And her situation got quite a bit worse, but resolved. But she had a, a, a miscarriage uh, at home at home in the bathroom, uh-huh. um, a really, really excruciating day or two. Oh. Um, and was sick for a few weeks after that. Oh. But that experience of feeling so powerless brought that issue home to me in ways that I had never done before. Yeah. And why do you think that experience changed your views on abortion? Because you could have theoretically said this is an anomaly or this is not really an abortion it's a medical necessity you know and i still don't believe in abortion mostly because it forced me to actually think about the subject Mm. and you know i hadn't really thought about it all that much 
I had never really considered the the medical implications of not being able to get an abortion. I had never considered what that might do, especially to women who had less resources than we had, who were facing medical conditions in a pregnancy. And I felt really bad about that. You can always claim ignorance, which you know I had plenty of, but you know, compassion should figure into it too. There's a general belief where I come from that uh, this is essentially your lot in life. Just like you wouldn't steal from somebody to have a better day, you wouldn't uh, kill your kill your baby so that uh, you wouldn't be sick or be threatened with life. It's your, you know, your responsibility as a woman. You know, here, there it goes. Oh, wow. To do this. This is a moral obligation. And to get to a really substantive conversation about that situation, you really have to take several steps back into a conversation about the basic rights and importance of of my wife's life. And, you know, in that environment that I grew up in, those rights are pretty constrained. That experience forced me to start reconsidering a lot of passive political views, especially uh, views about uh, the rights of, of people around me who were gay. You know, again, something growing up in that environment, not even something to think about, not even something to consider. But then you start realizing the ways that your passive acceptance of certain political ideas is just devastating some people's lives, people's lives that you don't even ever see. Say more about that. How did your changing views on abortion affect your other views? In the wake of that experience, I can remember having conversations with people about uh, state constitutional amendment passed to limit the rights of gay people in Texas. Um, I remember having a conversation with a friend about that bill. She wanted it to pass because uh, she was, I believe what she said was, how am I supposed to explain to my daughter that that lifestyle is wrong if if there's a perfectly happy you know, married lesbian couple down the street. They're just, and they're married. Hmm. Yeah, and I, I told her, I said, you know, that's exactly the same logic behind Jim Crow. I can't maintain white supremacy if I've got a full, you know, perfectly successful black doctor living down the street. You know, how am I supposed to tell my kids that they're completely different? She was very annoyed by that. And it's really the first time I ever drew that line between you know, the, the cultural bigotry around our race ideology growing up and how much broader that kind of bigotry could extend. What do you most regret doing in support of your former views? Um, A candidate I was volunteering for. We're hanging out one evening and he's complaining about somebody was pulling up his yard signs and he kind of goes on a rant about things that those people do. Some of the things he was describing that people were doing around the edges of the campaign or you know, yard signs and stuff like this sounded not entirely credible. And I said, you know, I think some of this may just be nerves. 
some of this stuff I don't know if your Democratic opponents are actually doing. And he said, no, no, you don't understand these people. Those people will do things that you or I would never consider doing. What do you uh, what do you mean by that exactly? <laughs> he said, you see, you and I have another life to consider. We, you know, we have an everlasting life uh, to think about, but they only have this world. So they'll do all kinds of horrifying things uh, because they just don't have any moral compass. And I thought, oh, this is this is my moderate. And I thought, gee, I. Uh, I've been working really hard to help this guy win a tough election. I Maybe he shouldn't. But uh, he did, and he's still in the Texas legislature today. And what was his stance on abortion? His stance on abortion was, you know, a typical Republican pro-life position, probably more or less like mine, sort of a semi-indifferent opposition. But he has moved as the environment has changed. And uh, he has lined up uh, with the folks in Texas who have embraced an approach to abortion rights that sort of acknowledges that you can't eliminate abortion entirely. But in order to work around that, they're essentially just just punishing women in whatever ways they can for trying to pursue abortions. The, uh, the worst of it was a law, I believe it was 2011, that instituted what I can only really describe as a liturgy of shame for women pursuing an abortion. It's a whole series of steps that you have to go through, including a waiting period. You are forced by law to view a sonogram, and your doctor is forced by law to read you this statement about uh, basically the state's position on abortion, including some supposed facts about abortion that just aren't true, you know, connections to breast cancer, all, you know, health, health connections that are just utterly ludicrous. And to clarify that, that's, that law isn't even just against abortion. It's just, it's purely mean. Uh, it, it's, that is an attempt to harass and intimidate women who find themselves in that position. It's it's one of the uglier examples in the country. And he backed that. He, he didn't just concede to vote for it. He backed it very vocally in 2011. And I, uh, I, I helped put him in that position. You've mentioned that you also regret the fact that it was a personal experience that changed your views on abortion. Why do you regret that? Well, when you come to see something like that as a, as a moral issue, it was a moral issue all along. Um, I, I just uh, was blind to it until it affected me. That seems like a disturbing way to form moral conclusions. It seems like there should be a, uh, a more compassionate and uh, perhaps complex process to, to reach those conclusions, one that allows you to, uh, to reach moral conclusions that don't necessarily touch on your self-interest. Have you changed the way that you develop your moral conclusions? I think the result may be that I'm slower oh. to 
to reach them, <laughs> you know, and, and certainly and more flexible about them. Mm-hmm. It seems to have made me a little more circumspect about uh, how how certain I am of the of the way I do things, and, and to realize that to get at that, you're really you gotta have to you have to try, you have to listen to people that you weren't listening to before. Do you think there's anything that could have moved you as dramatically as your personal experience? I, I don't know. I mean, that was uh, it was a pretty big bridge to cross, uh, both because of how far it was from the world I grew up in, the positions I grew up in, and because of how costly it was in terms of my social relationships. It would take something big to to force somebody across that gap. I do wonder if uh, if I would have gotten there without that experience, and that's kind of a shame. Was there a particular instance of coming out, quote unquote, with your changed views on abortion to people for whom that would have been a big change? I think my first coming out moment was actually at a precinct meeting. I dared to mention that, you know, hey, this, you know, this very extreme uh, anti-choice measure that you guys are discussing putting in the platform might have certain downsides that you hadn't considered. And the silence that drifted into hostility was, I feel naive now for being surprised, but I was surprised by how powerful it was. There wasn't even any discussion about it. It was just, it was almost like, it was like I'd farted. Uh, <laughs> there's just no, people kind of looked like, is this actually happening? And then they just moved on. And there was no more conversation directed my way from there out. What What happened then after the room was silent? With I you? left. You just left? You didn't talk to yeah. anyone? No. I, I, I needed to go. I needed to retreat and rethink some things. And that was that's actually the last precinct meeting I attended in Texas. And that's because one of the things Chris rethought was Texas. He and his wife felt that an emerging faction of fundamentalist political and religious culture there was not quite where they wanted to raise their kids. So they moved from Houston to Chicago. Chris got involved in local Republican politics there and joined a Methodist church. And his worldview continued to evolve into how he would describe it today. Uh, an, an embrace of ambiguity, um, and an increasingly comfortable uh, embrace of ambiguity. For people who haven't been raised in a fairly strict, extreme religious environment, I don't, I don't know if I can convey how comforting it is uh, to know that you possess the secret to how everything in the universe works and 
And as a consequence, I mean, we had this amazing bonus. We were going to heaven and everyone else was going to hell. It was great. Can you talk a little bit about the the discomfort of watching that certain world crack? You got a very comforting worldview that tells you that you're right about everything. And you start to realize that you've got that slightly wrong, at least slightly wrong. The stakes are very, very, very high. You're leaving, you're exiting something where everything is, is assured. Your family, friends, you know, the people around you are supportive of that and not of where you're going. But on the other side of this divide is just ambiguity. There's no, you're never going to, you're never going to know you were right to have made that journey. There's a, there's a, a South Park episode. Everybody dies. They're in the waiting room to find out what happens to you after you die. And somebody just gets up and announces, oh, and by the way, the answer was Mormonism. <laughs> they could be as right as anyone else. <laughs> well, then what would you say about that now? Was it worth it? Yeah, yeah. And it certainly hasn't come cheap. I'm far from home. I miss home. On my wife's side, my kids are sixth generation Texans. I, you know, I deep, deep roots. I lost a community. But uh, yeah, I would say it's worth it. I would do it again. Um, I wish I'd done it earlier. I wish I'd, uh, I wish I had thought to uh, start questioning some of this stuff earlier in my life. I feel like I want to make a joke about taking a bite out of the apple, but it would be absurd because you also <laughs> changed your religious views. <laughs> yeah, well, I, you know, it, <laughs> that is very much seen as essentially what I did. You know, questioning things the way I did, taking on knowledge that you're not really supposed to have and not supposed to uh, indulge in is very much equated with that creation story. But by taking that bite out of the apple, so to speak, Chris didn't quite move from ignorance to knowledge. Perhaps ironically, he moved from certainty to ambiguity. He didn't just change his views on abortion, he changed the way he forms his views to be less certain and more circumspect. Which touches all of his views on abortion along with race and homosexuality and everything else in this delicate mobile we call a worldview. Meanwhile, his family back in Texas still operates from a place of certainty. They've managed to stay close and still spend Christmas and other holidays together, and I wondered how that all worked. What has made this work is the sense of community. My sisters, my uncles, my parents, these are not just uh, avatars in a chat room. I have investments in their lives. They have investments in me. We want to work things out. And our disagreement about one particular subject, whether it's this or something else, is always in the context of those relationships. Those strands of community are disappearing. Um, and it's leading to a political environment that's increasingly hostile. 
Yeah, and what's interesting is that all these kind of community building, recreating community initiatives, I'm being kind of vague, I'm not mentioning anything here, but it seems like a lot of these kinds of intentions to recreate community that I'm seeing, at least in my bubble, are very much still just connecting you with people who have the same ideology and the same values, which on the one hand feels good, but on the other doesn't really address this very real problem that you're identifying of increased divisiveness because we don't have investments or attachments or or love for people, with people, with whom we have ideological disagreements. It, and it is that love. It is, it, it is those relationships. That's exactly what it was for Bob Inglis with his family that really challenges us to look at ourselves in the mirror deeply, but, but in a gentle and loving way within the container of loving relationships. Exactly. Yeah. As little as a generation ago, when I was a kid, people were still very much bound by a sense of community. Um, often in a lot of ways that they they didn't like. <laughs> you know, they, you know where, where I grew up, people felt obliged to go to church, go to Rotary Club, participate in the Masons, or all these all of these other social capital institutions that everyone was involved in. And those interactions heavily filtered what came out in our politics and made it much harder for extremists to survive through those filters and reach positions of power. I think helping people understand that their participation in something as simple as the PTA or the Little League is not a purely self-interested undertaking. Social activist Eli Pariser writes, To be a good citizen, it's important to be able to put yourself in other people's shoes and see the big picture. What Chris is saying here is that putting ourselves in other people's shoes might be as simple as participating in seemingly self-serving activities like the PTA and the Little League. And this is where the personal meets the social. We're making sure that my kids are getting a good education meets strengthening the fabric of our democracy. In that spirit, I asked Chris to help me walk in the shoes of the fundamentalist Christian women he grew up with who were strongly opposed to abortion. If I think back to the environment that I grew up in, especially women in the position of accepting the assumptions that we were given about what their appropriate role was supposed to be and how they're supposed to live their lives. There's a special hostility reserved for other women who cross those lines. And if you've accepted that it's perfectly appropriate that uh, you don't have the right to make decisions for yourself, there's, uh, there's a lot of tension with women who've decided that they do, you know, particularly around an issue like abortion, and especially if those women have, uh, have used that decision as the lever to uh, move on and become prosperous and successful. You know, a, a woman who got pregnant at 17 or 18, and instead of having the baby stayed in school, you know, got an abortion, moved on, they can be viewed with particular resentment. Because the people who accepted and did, you know, did the made the other decision, perhaps didn't have things turn out as well. 
Do you know women who feel that yeah. way? Um, and uh, that's a very that's a tough thing because it's very difficult in a lot of those cases, especially when you knew them personally and you knew the consequences, and, and you knew that they were raised in an environment where they weren't really given real alternatives. It would have been you know, for some of these women I'm holding in my head at the moment. It would have been uh, a matter of remarkable personal courage to have an abortion. It would have required all kind. It would have required logistics at a remarkable level to have an abortion. And from my perspective, it seems like many of them suffered for it. Just like you want people to have choices available to make in those situations, you also want to be very slow uh, to judge people who made different choices. Can you talk a little bit about what the stakes are for these women you have in mind? to consider changing their views on abortion? Oh, well, I mean, if, if you think for a minute, nobody is ever going to say, gee, I wish I hadn't had that baby. Of course, yeah. The comfort that comes from certainty about really, really deeply personal issues like uh, sexuality, identity, race, you know, especially if you've been around a while and you've built an entire life uh, around those understandings, that's a pretty dangerous opinionectomy. Opinionectomy. That's, that's just a tough part of what's otherwise kind of an obvious if-then conversation about abortions data in that environment is filtered from the source, not necessarily from its merits itself. That blocks access right. to most of those conversations. Yeah, of course. Wow. All the more reason to make it family who you can't run away from. <laughs> <laughs> kids are really great for that. Thank you, kids, for rebelling against us and making us question everything all over again. <laughs> Note to self, listen to my kids when they rebel against me. Hopefully I'll be able to do that. All right. It's tough. <laughs> yeah. Trust me. It's, it's, it's started. It started because one of Chris's sons is considering going back to Texas for college. Chris actually likes the idea because he wants his son to understand the Lone Star State, which is where his son was born and where his family comes from, and of course is not monolithic by any stretch. Chris also, in contrast to the certainty he inherited, wants his kids to ask questions and to embrace ambiguity in their own way. I wondered how Chris maintains his embrace of ambiguity. I look for things that I respond to heatedly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good indicator. Yeah, I mean, those are the things that clearly are touching you on some deep emotional level, and that's where you're most likely to find something that you just didn't examine. There's something fun and exciting about getting introduced to an idea that is sort of intellectually consistent. It, it's, it's sound, but I don't like it. Uh-huh. Yeah. Wow. Well, that's, I mean, it's amazing that you even feel that way, that that is something that is exciting to you. Well, I mean, that's where you're most likely to discover a flaw. That's where you're most likely to discover something that you missed that would make you 
make you better as a person and ultimately as a citizen. Chris Ladd lives in Chicago, where he works in the software industry and for his local Republican precinct. But with the U.S. presidential election, even his commitment to the Republican Party is being shaken. If Trump becomes the GOP nominee, Chris may be moved to leave the Republican Party, which would be the second home he loses after Texas. And, ironically, which would put him in the same boat as religious conservatives on the right who are also anti-Trump and also anti-abortion. And so, the ambiguous journey continues. Chris's wife was eventually diagnosed with an autoimmune disease similar to lupus. She ended up having five pregnancies and two children. She was on bed rest for almost five months with their second child in a desperate but ultimately successful effort to carry him to term. Chris and his wife are grateful to have two sons. Are you familiar with Bob Inglis? <laughs> I've uh, I talked to Bob Inglis often, actually. Really? Um, he's, he's become kind of a friend. Wow. I actually just interviewed him for this show on Monday. Oh, you're kidding. That's, <laughs> <laughs> that's fantastic. Episode 12, former South Carolina congressman Bob Inglis. We'll be reckoning with his worldview transformation around climate change. At around minute 23 in this episode, I slipped in a little reference to him. Now you retroactively know what I was talking about. Have thoughts about the show? Please share them at facebook.com slash reckonings. Have something you'd like to share anonymously? Call our anonymous voicemail line at 641-715-3900 and dial extension 858-952-POUND. I'm Stephanie Lepp. Our theme music was composed by Chris Peck. And thank you for listening to Reckonings. Reckonings.